Hello listeners and welcome to the Monta Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. This week we turn our attention to the UK. The country has set clear net zero targets for 2050, but events in recent weeks have raised questions about the current UK government's commitment to its climate objectives. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has pledged to max out the country's oil and gas reserves, while the expansion of urban low-emission zones, ULEZ for short, into suburban London has become a divisive issue. In addition, Sweden's Vattenfall has pulled out of a 1.4 gigawatt offshore wind farm, citing higher costs. The country's nuclear rollout has stalled, and local opposition to large-scale infrastructure is growing. Helping me, Richard Sverson, to unravel the country's energy policy is Anthony Froggart of Chatham House. A warm welcome, Anthony. Thanks very much. Let's start by talking about the UK's energy policy, or would it be better to call it an energy mess? We have a policy. It's certainly troubled at the current time, and I think that's for a, a number of reasons. I mean, what we saw, in particular since the invasion of Ukraine, was much more focus on energy security and the UK's desire and and need to have energy from a a, a wider variety of sources and the impact that that had on consumer prices. So the government had to step in and and give really quite significant subsidies. On the one level, you have the whole energy security going up, the political agenda, affordability being crucial from an electoral perspective, but also from a societal perspective. But climate change hasn't gone away. And we've seen that over the last months. I mean, the continual and growing impacts of climate change. Uh, But the Conservative government have responded to that is seeking to use climate change as a issue, uh, as what's called a wedge issue, trying to show difference between their party and the main opposition, the Labour Party. So climate change has become much more of a political issue at the current time. I mean, I will return to that bit later about the the opposition. But would you say that the government is is backtracking on its climate goals i think there's sort of growing groundswell isn't there in some parts of the media that you know and and it seems to be that the current government is, and with the prime minister is, is listening to them would that be a fair assessment anthony i think it's it, it's clear that they see this as an important political issue it is a it was surprising during the election campaign for the conservative leadership so in, in the uk they have a strange or the, the conservatives have a, an unusual electoral system whereby Only their members get to choose the next leader of the party. And when the leader of the party is the current prime minister or the Conservatives are in power, then effectively they're choosing the prime minister. And it's quite a small uh, electorate. It's like 60,000 people, and most of which are from a very narrow stream of society. They tend to be older, white, living in outside of major cities. So they elected the, the, the prime minister and the prime minister had to appeal to them. So... During that election campaign, they basically said we wouldn't do any more onshore renewables, for example. So it becomes a a, a politicised issue in terms of energy policy. And what's the opposition doing? I mean, what, what's its stance? I see, you know, maybe we could talk about, you know, the, the ultra low emission zones here. That seemed to be a big factor in a recent by-election win for the Conservatives, maybe with a narrow majority. But uh, the Labour Party, the opposition Labour Party and its leader, Kirstama, seem to backtrack a little bit on these kind of ULEZ or ultra-low emission zones. It was a surprise. So it was very unusual. There were three by-elections on the same day. There was sort of the Conservatives who expected to lose all three, but they won the one that they were least expected to win. And so everyone was looking at why was this? And as you said, it, it was in the outer edges of London and the mayor of London is uh, expanding the current 
uh, ULES low emission zone from. Currently, it's within a, a relatively small area of London to expand it to within the sort of the, the orbital motorway called the M25. And this affects many conservative held constituencies. So most of central London is is held by the Labour and the outer ring is held by the Conservatives. And so the, there, the future parliamentarian campaigned very strongly against ULES. It's very interesting to note that ULES was introduced by the Conservative, Boris Johnson, who then became Prime Minister. But that's often not talked about. Because they won the seat on the basis of that, Many people within the Conservative Party have said, well, look, that shows that environmental stroke climate change issues are a vote loser. And if we loosen the regulations in these areas, then we will win more votes. The Labour Party have said, yeah, a difficult one. And asked the Labour current mayor of London to think again. He's said, don't really want to change the policy, but have offered more subsidies for consumers in terms of scrappage schemes. So they've reacted to some degree, but it highlights, for me at least, the extent to which the Conservatives, there is a wing of the Conservatives that don't like environmental policy and want to see rolling back on environmental policy and see now as opportunity to do that. So you've seen that in other areas. So uh, Michael Gove, who is the Minister for Leveling Up, has said, well, maybe we should be not uh, requiring such high energy efficiency standards. There's another question about gas boilers. Should there be a... Uh, the government is, I, th- I think it's 2035, saying we won't be allowed to build houses with gas boilers in. Um, and so they're proposing that that potentially be reduced. They've said that they'll stand firm on electric vehicles and the ban on internal combustion engines. But I suspect that will be the next that will come under significant threat uh, going forward. But so far, the government hasn't rolled back on it on many of its sort of longer term pledges. It's some of the policy and implementation measures that they are wavering on. The ULES issue is quite interesting as well because the Labour mayor of Manchester, for example, is also held back introducing similar measures that the former Conservative mayor Boris Johnson introduced in London. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult issue. Um, I mean, I had to get rid of my car and it cost a lot. Um, so it's it, it's it's not an easy thing. Uh, it affects lots of businesses, but yet it brings air quality benefits as well as helps to speed up the transformation in terms of electric vehicles, which we know are essential if we're going to meet future climate targets. But the other problem is, of course, is is a budgetary one, is the local authorities, so within London or within Manchester, may not have the ability to offer scrappage schemes or to be able to support uh, other measures fiscally because it's not within their powers. It requires central government involvement. So there is a, a tension that exists also in this space. Mm, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, it is electric vehicles are not cheap either. And and certainly, you know, a lot of people certainly in uh, outside of, of, of city centres rely on them quite heavily. But let's touch on a few other areas. Offshore wind. I mean, I mentioned in the introduction there, Vatten, Vattenfall pulling out, uh, citing higher costs, basically, you know, inflation, interest rates, the whole environment, financial environment has become very difficult for companies to, to, to build such farms on, on scale they originally planned to do. do you think that's the first step of many or what's what's going on? I, I guess everyone is looking in this space. What we've seen over the last couple of years is the higher energy prices have a positive impact for renewables because obviously they're not being affected by the price of fossil fuels in terms of their outcome or output. 
But clearly the materials that they need are affected by the increased material costs, increased construction costs, inflation, interest rates going up. All of these for capitally expensive bits of equipment are problematic. And so where you have systems, and in particular, as you mentioned, offshore wind. So in terms of the process for offshore wind, uh, at least within the UK, the government opens up the opportunity for companies to bid. They bid and say, we will, we will build this farm of, let's say, 500 megawatts. And we agree to do it at a set price. And that set price obviously is based on what they thought were the construction costs with profit included. If the construction costs go up significantly, then their their profit margin is squeezed significantly or sometimes disappears. And so that's what they're pushing for, a renegotiation of the price that was agreed in terms of the production costs. Um, so it's difficult. The UK government is, in terms of, I mentioned before, the, the Conservative government is elected by a small band of a relatively small number of electorate who don't like onshore renewables because it's they, they, they tend to be outside cities in areas in which they fear the renewables will be built. Therefore, the government is, has become more reliant on offshore wind in order to meet its targets. Uh, and so I think this is will be extremely problematic for the Conservatives if they see a slowing down of the renewable development because offshore wind the costs rise significantly. I mean, can you see that the UK government willing to, to renegotiate some of these contracts? I mean, they're mainly based on contracts for differences, aren't they? They've said that they're willing to give a little bit more money, but it's a relatively small amount. And so we're talking tens of millions when these things are costing hundreds of millions, if not billions, in terms of the total uh, sector, sector costs. So we haven't seen them willing to open up the checkbook. Um, I think it, it also comes back to the question that we discussed previously about their willingness to be seen to be green and seeing that actually they're trying to label Labour Party as the sort of in with the, the greeny loonies in some ways. There was a, a ridiculous letter that went from Grant Shapps, who's the uh, minister in charge of uh, business and uh, energy. And he sent a, a bill to Keir Starmer saying um, the green protesters have have painted on the walls of, of our building, you should pay for this because the Labour Party received money from someone supporting this same group. I mean, total madness that they spend their time writing letters in such an obscure way. But it's, it's almost a, quite frivolous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but it's about them trying to label the Labour Party. So this is what I mean is they want to say Labour is going to destroy jobs because they're pro-green. Uh, and that's what a element that we will see because we have an election at the end of next year. That may well be an issue that is continued to be revisited. This kind of wedge uh, politics that you're talking about, that the Tories are, but but does that mean, you know, are they continuing with their green policies, or are they also rolling back from what they're saying? Or are they being, you know, not so open about 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 their their, their renewable or their green policy? Um, I, th I I think we're seeing questions being raised about the policies and the targets and maybe we should pu push back the target by five years either because things aren't in place or because of covid higher costs etc so i i think there is nervousness amongst many people that uh they're not putting in place the policies in order to meet the future targets and i think that is the question that we yeah we will have to see over the next few months but i, th I think the longer term targets probably won't be addressed but if you don't put in place the policies to meet them, then effectively you're scrapping them in any case. 
but it's interesting also to note that the wholesale price of electricity is is far higher now uh, than it was when some of these these um, these projects were were planned, were launched, were were signed off. You know, I think that's also as a factor, but maybe not a big enough factor. Yeah, I mean, I I guess there's a hu- there's a, a greater degree of uncertainty about what the price of energy will be looking forward, um, given in some ways what we have seen is the impact of geopolitics on energy price like we haven't seen for a decade or two. You talked about the ban on onshore wind and the opposition to to onshore wind. Do you think that's ever likely to be revoked or that we will see a rollout of onshore wind again in the UK? I hope so. I mean, it, it is... If we want energy security, if we want cheaper energy, if we want cheaper decarbonized energy, then onshore renewables are obviously the way forward uh, in terms of they can be done quicker uh, and they are cheaper. It's cheaper to build onshore than offshore. The government keeps talking about reviewing it, but I don't think they'll be in a hurry to review it. So I suspect that what we'll see is is a fairly similar situation over the next 18 months. Uh, and then post-election... One way or another, I I suspect the policy will change. But, I mean, the UK is falling behind. I mean, to give an example in terms of solar, what we've seen uh, in the UK over the last six months in terms of solar deployment was 500 megawatts of new solar being put on the grid. So we've just gone to just over 15 gigawatts. In Germany, over over the same period, over six gigawatts were put in place, taking them to about 70 gigawatts. So you can see the difference between Germany and the UK. If we then go to China, over the last six months, they've employed over 70 gigawatts in six months alone. So nearly, yeah, I mean, in in a month in China, they've nearly put in place the same as the UK has in total. I mean, it's, and and this is interesting because it's it's both in China, it's both centralized solar, but also they've changed the, the, the planning. So there's much more decentralized. So over half of that is decentralized. So individual shop owners, et cetera, are being able to put in place solar. Um, so it, there, there is a, a real pace of change that the UK is missing out of. And even if we compare ourselves to continental Europe, uh, it's, yeah, other countries are moving much, much faster. Because you would have thought in the current climate and the, and the discussions around energy security, solar is, you know, is a no-brainer. Um, I would agree. I mean, it, clearly there's problems if you have too much of it uh, in terms of grid balancing and in particular through yeah distribution grids etc i mean we need to plan it but what we don't need is planning slowing down the deployment what we don't need is planning delaying the development and access to the grid is is clearly a problem in the uk in europe and in the united states for example one of my favorite facts for from last month in the united states was that there is uh, two terawatts of renewables and batteries waiting to come on the grid, which is more than the current total installed capacity. And that's planning issues, delaying the development. Not all of them would necessarily go ahead, but you can see that there is a huge number of companies that said, actually, we want to get on and, and develop these things. And we have, yeah, so it's grid congestion that is is delaying the deployment. Mm. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, solar does have issues around when there's too much of it. And I think the Netherlands is seeing that quite clearly in terms of negative pricing. Um, and they're trying some, in some areas, trying to, to cope with that with different mechanisms. But 
you know, in the UK, I see, you know, celebrities come out to who are, who live near proposed big solar farms coming out very strongly against. Um, is, is that a problem here that, you know, it's it's it is nimbyism, but it's it's also, you know, very prominent people coming out, uh, whether they're TV personalities or actors or, you know, uh, in opposition to the solar solar farms, is is that an issue in the UK? I mean, I think it is everywhere, and and development needs to be done uh, with care and respect for the environment. I mean, yeah, we don't want to concrete everything and put solar panels on, but yeah, and it it delays costs or delays projects, increases costs, etc. We're bashing the government a bit over the last uh, couple of minutes. I mean, they have just yeah authorized the UK's largest solar plant so i think it's 400 gigawatts sorry 400 megawatts um so some things are taking place uh and yeah it has to be done with care but the as i said the uk is falling very much behind and you talk about the netherlands i mean they have i think it's around 22 gigawatts of solar on the grid so the uk has 14 so we have yeah we're a lot smaller in terms of we're a lot larger in terms of population lots larger in terms of landmass but significantly behind in terms of solar deployment absolutely and i think countries like poland as well have made rapid advances in, in solar i mentioned in the introduction as well uh, anthony about you know rishi sunak maxing out the oil and gas reserves i mean does that send out mixed signals Yes. I mean, it, it's interesting from a number of factors. One is the fact we talked about before in terms of the wedge issue. So the, the Labour Party have said that they wouldn't stop any existing projects that have been licensed, but they wouldn't license any more once they come to power. So in some ways, what that does is if you're an oil and gas company, you're going to go, well, we've got a year in order to guarantee that we can get, we can carry on. So that's probably sped up an increased concern but the conservative party have identified this as an issue that again that they can highlight we're different from the labor party so um i think that's part of what they're doing i think it's also part of the narrative that they have is it's better that we develop our own resources than import fossil fuels from other parts of the world clearly that goes against sort of international consensus actually we should stop exploring we have enough uh, fossil fuel reserves that we know and they're currently exploiting without doing more. And so, and that's, yeah, a, a problem. And it, it so on, uh, and it's also a signaling issue is as you talk about in the climate negotiations, trying to change language around stopping, uh, phasing down the use of coal or phasing down the use of oil and gas, other countries are turning around saying, well, UK wants to exploit more. And it also comes in some of the questions uh, this year's United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Conference of the Parties, so the, the big annual event is taking place in the UAE. And many people are concerned, well, UAE, you're a big gas exporter, you're a big fossil fuel company. And they, they turn around and say, well, look, the UK held the COP two years ago. They're now expanding their oil and gas development. So don't turn around and point the finger at us. It's other countries as well. So it is a definitely sends mixed signals. Do you expect this kind of uh, say narrative to be ratcheted up in the in the coming months ahead of an election, as in driving this wedge? Look at you know the Labour Party are sort of green loonies. We're the the, the sensible guys here. We're we're using our uh, fossil fuel reserves. We're not relying on f foreign unstable powers, but also we're you know slowly dealing with you know building out rolling out uh, renewables. I guess we'll have to see. It's very clear that it's being tested. 
I guess the question is, does it change the polls? And they must be doing their focus groups to assess, is this working? Does this attract the right voters that we need to? The current indications are it's not working in terms of that the, the polling hasn't shifted. Labour are significantly ahead and remain significantly ahead. So it hasn't changed the dial. But that doesn't mean that they don't think the strategy is right. They may just think we need to do it harder. Um, so I, I don't know. But it is the Conservative Party was very much seen as the the economically responsible party and the confidence in their it, it sort of economic competence has diminished and so this may well be a way in which also they're trying to do this thing we're not going to throw away the economy for green issues so um it's a way in which that will potentially feed into it but yeah we'll have to see in terms of new nuclear uh, what, what's happening here i mean we've had you know, Hinkley Point C, we were supposed to, you know, the Brit- Britons were supposed to be uh, cooking their Christmas turkeys on it by 2017, uh, as was famously said, I think, by the, the previous head of, of the UK's EDF uh, subsidiary. What, what, what's going on here? What's the situation? Yeah, complex question. I mean, in terms of Hinkley, costs have risen again, which again is probably not surprising. I mean, if we, we talked before about the, the cost for the offshore wind, um, these material costs, inflation costs, etc., are affecting the final production price, s- similar with Hinkley. So it's delayed. Probably the latest figure now is maybe September 2028. The total cost is now 32 billion. If you take 2020, I mean, that's partly an inflation question, uh, but it's also increased construction costs. So monetary inflation and, and increased costs, but significant. I mean, huge. I mean, uh, for a a single power plant, it's a lot of money. The government has remains committed to making a final investment decision on a similar design um, at Sizewell C. So it's two 1.6 gigawatt each EDF uh, built reactors. The problem is that EDF and the UK government don't want to finance it. So they've come up with a new means of financing it or a, a new means in which they can uh, increase the effectively the subsidy from consumers for it, uh, which sort of makes sense. Uh, the contracts for difference are hinklier, are eye-wateringly expensive. Um, in 2013, it was £92 a megawatt hour. It's an index linked. So probably by the time it comes online, it's going to be 120, 130, £140 a megawatt hour. Offshore wind was at 50. So you're talking two to three times the cost of offshore wind. Uh, So they probably can't repeat that. um, But they need to guarantee some sort of income because the government has said it would take 20% share. EDF says it doesn't want to have more than 20% share. So you've still got 60% that has to come from somewhere. And if you're talking construction costs in the tens of billions, that's quite a lot to raise. So there needs to be investor certainty in terms of a some sort of fixed price that is above what they yeah will give them a, a good rate of return plus they need to attract a significant amount of money so it's going to be tough to make a final investment decision all of those ducks need to be lined up um, over the next 18 months so we'll see if they make that so that's one element of nuclear and then the other thing that the government is that they've launched a thing called great british nuclear so a new vehicle to, they say, to help develop the small modular reactors and potentially sometime in the future build other large reactors. It was delayed for a long time. It has been launched. We'll have to see. Rolls-Royce is very keen to build small modular reactors in the UK. Technically, they're not small. They're 400 megawatts uh, under 
internet other definitions you must be below 300 i mean 400 megawatts is still a large project so they're probably less modular than um others might be uh but we'll see whether or not again it's a government gives relatively large amounts of money in the hundreds of millions but if you're talking building lots of these reactors you need a lot more than that so how much the private sector comes in on this is yeah is questionable and providing that investor certainty is the model there is it uh, the rab the regulated asset basis yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's it's and it enables them to start raising income during construction so if as we have with Hinkley, for example, EDF is bankrolling it along with the Chinese. The Chinese is one of the reasons also that China has pulled out because they're no longer being offered the opportunity to build in the UK. So therefore, they're not investing. If you have a 10-year construction period and it has to be all paid for by the, the, the companies, then obviously that's quite expensive over that period of time. So being able to charge future users during construction period makes a big financial difference and and so that's one of the the things that will be within the regulatory asset base yeah i think i think it's a it's a fascinating discussion and i'm sure one i would look forward to returning to discuss with you anthony but thank you very much for being a guest on the montel weekly podcast thanks very much great conversation